podcast everyone welcome to the charvak podcast this is your host kushal mehra my guest today is tripur daman singh and today we're going to be talking about his first book yeah you might be wondering ye kya ho raha hai second book ke baad first book discuss ho rahi hai well it is what it is so we're going to be talking about tripur's first book which is imperial sovereignty and local politics the bhadoria rajputs and the transition from mughal to british india the era is 1600 to 1900 tripur thanks a lot for coming on the podcast uh, it's an absolute pleasure kushal and thank you so much for inviting me all right so tripur we're going to start with this so you have to lay this down for us so of all the topics you could have picked up to cover for, <laughs> for yeah. your book why this topic because this is such a uh, i don't know how to put it this is such a niche area of understanding that to a very niche subject which is something like sovereignty where uh, what basically we're looking at in your book when we read this is basically how power is understood and how yeah. people have different perspectives when it comes to power and prestige so why did you pick this subject uh so this book grew out of my phd actually it's um uh this is what i this was a subject i wrote my uh my phd thesis on and i found it really fascinating and uh the reason that i found it fascinating was to think about it when you know people talk about indian princes and indian emperors etc it's interesting to think that all these people ex- existed at the same time uh, everyone was ruling uh, in some form or the other and to me it was very interesting to think about you know how could there be uh, the zamindar and the prince and the emperor uh were all existing and they were all ruling at at the same time so how 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 could this be conceptualized um of course you can think of it you know as a division of power you know some in the way federal kind federal sort of systems always work but there's something more than that because this kind of system continued for for a long time and you could see you can see it uh, across the 1800s especially late 1700s and the 1800s especially when the mughal emperor is a kind of powerless uh, figure he had you know his his authority is limited to the fort in delhi etc but he's still the mughal emperor and you know he's still the dispenser of titles uh, and uh, so i i found this really fascinating and i thought um so this became my phd and then uh, from that you know that that's how the book kind of came out so now now let's get into this so uh, as you mentioned uh, obviously the mughal emperor was pretty much uh, put to delhi uh, in <laughs> terms of real might you would not say they were that mighty right this is an era yeah. where the mughal empire was starting to wean away it was not really mm-hmm. that relevant uh, in terms of might but mm-hmm. here you have a scenario where you start and you 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 bring a scenario where so let's talk about this 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 whole idea of prestige and power and, mm-hmm. and it is all kind of interconnected to access or or the understanding of what access is so how did the mughals if so if i was to ask you this question how did the mughals create or design this understanding of prestige um so partly it came from their own uh, 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 so, sort of history because um, authority in uh, in the sort of timurid world and in the persianate world was quite heavily um i'd say ritualized and so there's a lot of history kind of history writing about this um about how 
authority was not something that you just exercised, but it's also something that you performed. So it, was, uh, it wasn't simply giving an order for something to be done. There was a lot of symbol and ritual uh, and performance that went into, uh, went into creating and ruling a kingdom. And a lot of anthropological literature, uh, people like Clifford Geertz in the case of Bali, but also um, someone like Burton Stein in the case of, especially in the case of South India, would say that um, there was something called a political realm or political sovereignty, which was something that was institutional, that was something that was bureaucratic, and there was something that was called ritual or symbolic sovereignty, that was something that was symbolic and created and conducted through ritual. Uh, and that's what something that the Mughals did very, very well was the creation of this kind of, of the emperor as a kind of sovereign who exercised political power, but who also exercised this kind of symbolic and ritual power. And both these things operated side by side. Uh, so for example, side by side, in a sense that they could be independent of each other. So it was, so the Mughal emperor was the Shahanshah, the king of kings, the sovereign among sovereigns. His sovereignty could be shared. So, you know, there were the Rajas of here and the Rajas of there who also exercised a part of the Mughal sovereignty. They took part in the sort of ritual of Mughal court. That is, they appeared at the Mughal court when they succeeded. They received a robe of honor and they, at the emperor, you know, officially gave them the title. They had a, a Mansabdari rank or an office in the Mughal army uh, or the sort of Mughal bureaucracy. Uh, and then they ruled their own domains uh, in a with more or less, you know, greater or lesser independence uh, from the Mughal, from direct Mughal rule. But on the other hand, they, going down, shared their own authority with, you know, their own uh, nobility, the so-called, sort, you know, they would be the Takurs of somewhere or the, the Zamindars of somewhere. Um, and Clifford Geertz said this about Bali, and I think this is applicable to India as well, was uh, sovereignty like divinity was one and the many. So, you know, you had many, there was one full sort of sovereign, which was the emperor, which, uh, and then you had many kind of half sovereigns, quarter sovereigns, uh, you know, I, or one might say one eighth sovereigns uh, who kind of share, shared that, shared that, shared that space. Uh, and they were all dependent on each other because the Raja's authority was ultimately the, the sort of position in some way was dependent on receiving confirmation of his position as the Raja, both by people below, but also by the people above. So, you know, they put in, and you see this especially when the Mughals don't have political power, they're still, the emperor is still the arbiter of titles. He's still the one who confirms you in, in your position. I mean, most famously when, uh, uh, I mean, Pajira Peshwa in 1737 invaded North India, uh, and he, uh, you know, had a show of force near Delhi. Ultimately, what they were demanding was they were demanding conf one of the things they were demanding. Of course, there were there were several others. Was uh, confirmation of uh, the right to levy uh, tax on the four provinces of the Deccan. And the thing is, they had already captured those four provinces. They were already levying tax, uh, but it was still a big thing to gain confirmation from the emperor. Uh, of the kind of official authority 
to be levying tax. So that's something that the Mughals did uh, exceedingly well. It came out through uh, through art, through you know performance of granting and receiving of titles, uh, of robes of honor, uh, of kind of these uh, positions. Because you know by the 17, uh, if you look at the titles of the Nawabs of Awadh, for example, it was the Nawab Wazir, because they still claim to be. Uh, so wazirs of the of the Mughal court. So everybody who, even those who in the end kind of destroyed Mughal authority, did it from below. They never really. There was little conceptual. I won't say there was no conceptual challenge because uh, something like Shivaji's coronation, for example, was a huge conceptual challenge because he had himself crowned a Hindu uh, Chhatrapati with no reference to the sort of. Pajanate uh, uh, system, mutually accommodative Pajanate system, which the North Indian sort of ruling class, whether Hindu or Muslim, uh, was a part of. But apart from that, there was there were very few uh, real challenges, uh, and that's why this kind of uh, the Mughal state as when seen as a sort of symbolic system as a sort of system of uh, ritual or as a uh, as a sort of non-instrumental thing take leave aside the institutions leave aside relations of tax bureaucracy or military it still survived as a kind of uh, as, as an idea or as an ideology maybe so to speak um, and that's you know that's that's the crux of it really and it survived till so late that even when it's this is an interesting to note when Warren Hastings was governor general, uh, one of the things Warren Hastings was trying to do was, uh, as he famously said, to figure out the Mughal constitution, because he believed that, uh, uh, and I think correctly to a certain extent, uh, was that through these sort of interactions, you could somehow come to grips with uh, uh, with what he called the, the Mughal constitution. So, so here's the interesting bit. Now let us go a little deeper in this. So, this it's uh, like I was telling to you offline. You know, it all signs. So let us forget what they're doing. I'm looking at it as a human being and at a human mm-hmm. level. So, what this kind of system indicates to me is some sort of, um, you know, a system where you certify elites or certify yeah. who the elite is mm-hmm. and who becomes the elite. It is like in in today's world. Like I said, you know, in Mumbai or in Bandra or, or, or somewhere, you know, there are these elite gymkhanas or clubs where mm-hmm. only the elite, the who's who go. Or in the Taj, there is this exclusive club or the Otters Club in Bandra or somewhere, you know, you have to go through a selection process to even get into the club. It's not that you have money membership. There is a process. You have to go through a membership interview. Yeah. You take the interview. And, and so... So what struck me as I was reading your book was that here's a scenario where obviously, you know, as the Mughal power is clearly in terms of military might completely gone away. But now we bring in what you call the Vadoria Rajputs, right? Now here are the Vadoria Rajputs in such a scenario still getting attracted to the title that the Mughals are giving them. Now, obviously, there are other reasons that you mention in the book, like the taxation politi- pol- policy of the Marathas. And I would request you to even talk about that bit. But first, let's dissect this a little more. What does it tell you about human nature that it doesn't matter, you know, 
we go from a you know a monarchy to a democracy but human beings are the same they still are status seeking primates we yeah. seek status we want to be elite it doesn't matter if you were uh, in the 1600s to 1900s or you were in the indus valley times you know post agricultural societies seem to have this natural thing functioning in them that the moment you create hierarchies everybody wants to be the elite and the moguls i in a very weird way were past masters as this that even after basically being null and void in terms of military might they still were like nahi nahi sir ji ki to humko certification leni hi padegi kyunki jab tak sir ji nahi kahenge ki hum so and so falana hai we're not going to be taken seriously so what does it say so how did the moguls in your opinion understand that these people are kind of desperate about this uh i i don't think they it's it i don't think they understood it's something that draws on on many things uh so one thing was that it wasn't just raj it wasn't just uh, the the pathoria rajputs all sort of north indian elitist groups uh whether it was the rajputs or whether it was later on um uh the the sort of later i guess rajput clans such as the bundelas or later on you know even the marathas uh ultimately everyone was seeking titles but title wasn't just a title because it the title kind of spoke a, a language that they all understood so it was a language that certified you as elite of you know it marked you out as exalted in terms of blood in terms of uh, a sort of ancestry uh, there there was a there was quite a lot going on and you see that because as the emperor becomes less and less powerful the titles become more and more grandiose uh so you know what somebody who would be given the title you know during the reign of i, I don't know jahangir for example would be given the title of raja uh by the time you know 1787 comes around the the titles are you know completely uh uh they you know there you'll be given five titles as you know defender of the realm and you know etc uh, etc et so the way you built i guess fiefs i would say fiefdoms uh was to in some way destroy political authority and appropriate uh this sort of symbolic you know uh, sovereignty so it was it was very important uh, not just that you had a title but that you know you received the robe of honor and you dressed in a in a in this particular way uh and so you these were i guess markers or symbols of uh, of authority and sovereignty that uh, that people wanted it was your sovereignty wasn't complete if it was not recognized uh, uh, by the emperor and it's interesting you spoke of the clubs because it's so in in an interesting way to look about it is when they fight uh it's very rare that they fight to replace the club they fight yeah. effectively over over terms you know could, you you're taking too much tax uh, so i'm going to rebel and then uh, you know the rebellion happens if the and the rebellion is you know sometimes crushed uh, sometimes it's not crushed uh, if it's if you're not able to crush it then you know you eventually come to terms with it and say okay you know i'll make you i'll give you another title or i'll give you you know make you the uh, the the officer in charge of collecting tax of of this district uh, so that that's how it works you know they challenge nobody challenges the the existence of the club 
really. And even those who head the club, such as the emperor, find ways when that challenge happens to kind of negotiate through it through political, uh, I guess, compromise. Um, it's not, uh, it, this is something, some criticism that I received after talking to Abhinav Prakash on his podcast about this, was uh, when I said, you know, it made possible a certain sense of rebellion. It was possible to rebel against Mughal rule uh, mm-hmm. without really challenging its kind of, you know, status as as the emperor. So, you know, you could also say, I believe in the emperor and he's still the emperor, but, you know, I'm rebelling against. Uh, so that, that, that was possible. That's not to say that political action wasn't taken. So if the emperor had the power to subdue you politically, he would. Uh, but given that it was a pre-modern system where communication, you know, transport, etc., was so difficult, uh, that was never, not always possible. So um, Indian society has always been, I guess, averse in this sense to a kind of centralized uh, authority of the kind of centralized political authority, because even though you could symbolically, you know, all be uh, all submit to the emperor politically, it was never possible. So authority was always exercised by these figures, uh, whether it was the Raja, the Zamindar, the caste sort of leader, uh, sometimes city guilds. Um, and uh, I think that's something that's historically been true. And centralization, or I guess, monopoly of sovereignty is uh, is something that's an ongoing project in India. I, that's always been my belief. Now, that's a fascinating way. Not, not something that you mentioned in the book in the very initial bit was where you talk about, you know, the Bhadoriyas were uh, not considered brave warriors by the early yeah. Islamic chroniclers. Uh-huh. Yeah. And how their, their understanding and their journey of what the Bhadoriyas are changed. And, you know, as I was reading this, I was like, this is such a petty human emotion. I was like, suddenly it, it, So in a weird way, if we look at even that, how their title and their analysis and their position and their power equation with the Mughals change. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is all got to do with, you know, horses for courses uh, kind of a thing where you, it's like in modern day parlance today, as of now is the Taliban uh, is acting up and now we have a bomb blast and Americans are like, ha, Taliban, aap dekh lo, ISIS aap se bura. <laughs> it's, it's kind of that, right? Yeah. That the Americans doing it in a very weird way. So, so what does it say about the journey of the Bhadariya Rajputs then that, you know, even they were not really considered the same thing within the Mughal history either? No, 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 no. They were considered, uh, I mean, initially they were all, always, there's this um, terminology of, you know, the bandits and the uh, decoits, etc. Uh, and that's another interesting thing because... Um, Banditry was because the state never exercised a monopoly on the use of violence and uh, because the state didn't exercise a monopoly, I guess, on legitimate sovereignty either. Um, this, uh, this, this term banditry was often then a kind of term of moral abuse uh, as much as it was... Uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, as much as it could have been any sort of criminality, because um, 
everyone engaged, all sorts of military formations engaged in, uh, in some form of banditry, that is some form of extraction of revenue. Uh, and there's been a, a lot of work, etc., to by people like Dirk Kolf and others to show just how militarized Indian society was. So, you know, the, there's, a very, there's a sentence that uh, it's it stuck in my mind um, and it was written in a paper by the late John F. Richards where he says Indian, Indian uh, society was composed of warrior peasants. They always displayed the belligerence of warriors uh, because so to collect tax from them was uh, not, not easy. So there was always a sense of, uh, I guess, extraction of... Uh, extraction was always was always difficult so banditry was you know if we don't recognize you as legitimate then you know your bandits and then uh, you know but you're very good at extracting revenue so why don't we convert you into uh, you know into the person responsible for extraction of revenue and give you a title and tie you to the state so uh, that was very much something that was going on because ultimately the locality, as I, as I say it, so um, Indian local society uh, was something that you could only gain access to through these elites or through these sort of groups. Uh, an emperor sitting in Delhi or in Agra, even if he had an army of 100,000 people at his command, couldn't rule or gain access to the resources of the locality uh, because obviously the army couldn't be invading every single province. It couldn't constantly be waging war. Uh, the only way you could really gain access to extracting both wealth and uh, later on military manpower from these localities was to co-opt these, uh, co these groups. And to co-opt them, you kind of took them on board, but then you also made concessions such as giving them a certain degree of independence, uh, you know, giving them titles, accepting them as... Uh, uh, you know, something that the Mughals did very effectively was accepting them almost as equals through ties of marriage. Uh, so this um, this was very much a, a process through which these sort of imperial states uh, were built. And when uh, this was again something that the uh, and this was where I guess the conflict with the Marathas that that I meant that you mentioned often. Uh, often comes up is uh, that ultimately all states and all empires desire revenue and to extract that revenue you have to either cooperate with these people and co-opt them or you have to militarily defeat them and uh, take it away from them. So, so now let's get into the Maratha relationship and uh, the the Badoria Rajput relationship. Now, so so my first question to you would be that, so what was inherently different? So what were the differentiating factors between the Marathas who, at that point of time, pretty much had control in the real sense, in the military sense? I mean, mm -hmm. they were you know the mighty ones. Now, in spite of that, why would the Bhadoria Rajputs not prefer them and, and kind of side uh, or ally? I think ally is the right word because they were not really on the Mughal side either. They were on nobody's side, pretty much. They were, they were just like, we're doing our own thing. But so, so what was distinctly different in the way the Marathas functioned in comparison to the Mughals? Um, a few things. Firstly, um, 
again, this is, uh, I've, I've received a lot of criticism for it uh, before. This is not simply a point that I make. This is something that is drawn from uh, other scholars, some like Susan Bailey and uh, others like Amarjeet Prasad, etc. Uh, was that once Maratha rule was established, because they did defeat the Rajputs in battle, uh, and their political authority kind of became established quite quickly. But they were never really able to capture, first and foremost, this sort of, or create this kind of, uh, I guess, uh, position of like the Mughal emperor. So they never became the real, uh, they couldn't, become the source of legitimacy and ideological authority. So that was that was one 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 concern. Uh, some say that that was due to, in some ways, uh, a, a sort of Brahmin-centric uh, kingdom, because um, the sort of Peshwai kingdom was often imagined to be uh, uh, a sort of ideal Brahmin kingdom, etc., cetera. Um, and that was because once you, for them, legitimacy came through uh, symbolic acts uh, to a large extent, such as the construction of temples. So it's, again, something that my old supervisor, C.A. Bailey, has written about, which is uh, how there was like a real uptick in temple building across North India uh, in the late 17th and 18th centuries. Um, of Maratha rule as as Maratha rule progressed, uh, but this these were sort of symbols that any anyone could really take. So a lot of uh, Rajput sort of uh, princes appropriated these these sort of uh, symbols. That is of um, of conducting elaborate Hindu rituals, of uh, of constructing temples, etc., which uh, essentially were, I guess, markers of sovereignty. So. Um, in this, the Marathas were constantly challenged. Uh, they then there was and also a reliance of, uh, in administrative terms, on a very narrow uh, kind of uh, Chitpavan Brahmin elite, which provided the administrative class for the for the Maratha Empire. So um, these uh, these people were not. Um, uh, these people are not military commanders, really, most of them. Uh, and what they did was they were sent to administer uh, certain areas, and their responsibility was limited to the collection mainly of revenue. Uh, and um, it was a very, I guess, the Maratha state was very narrowly defined. It was defined almost outside of uh, the Maratha Suraj, outside of the core Territory. Can you elaborate this a little more? Because this is a very fascinating bit. Yeah, so it was a very, I guess, uh, when I say it was a, okay, so if it was very institutionally defined, it was a state that was concerned uh, very much with, uh, in some ways, with bureaucratic institutions. So, you know, they had, they had a very fast, they had very fastidious bureaucracy. And you see that when you see Maratha records, I mean, they're meticulous for the time that they're in. Uh, so it was it was very much a uh, a state managed by a kind of bureaucratic class drawn from uh, uh, drawn from a very narrow uh, Maharashtrian Brahmin elite. And um, 
they were also crucially not the warrior class of the of the Maratha Empire because the uh, armies were generally uh, generaled. There were, of course, some, but uh, this was these people were not warriors. They came with you know few staff because I remember looking at the papers of one of the Maratha administrators, Narushankar. His staff was minimal. He had a staff of about three hundred odd people, uh, and his basic job was to collect revenue and to remit that back to the Peshwa's court. And so they didn't, uh, and in pursuit of that, they were they were happy to uh, uh, to kind of intervene in disputes, etc. But they completely uh, neglected to, I guess, either neglected or failed really to construct this idea of this of the Maratha state beyond uh, beyond just the bureaucratic form. So the state is was not, I mean, as as I mentioned about the Mughal state, it was its institutional and bureaucratic form, but beyond that, it was also a kind of symbolic and ritual structure in which all of these people partook by through whether it was. Uh, titles and robes of honor and, you know, land grants and confirmation of land grants, etc. And the Marathas never really did this. Uh, and in the book, I talk about one of the successions of uh, of one of the Badoria Rajas is um, is something, you know, the, they, so they, the, the Maratha administrator, you know, has it done and, uh, there is a certain amount of revenue remitted for the for you know recognition, I guess, in a in a in a sort of bureaucratic sense. Uh, but ultimately, the title is then officially properly granted by by, uh, by the emperor, who sends you know uh, a sanad, you know, granting you I, I you know Shah Alam whatever grants you know grants the raja his title of this this and this, and directs all officers of that region to cooperate with him and, you know, uh, obey his orders and et cetera, et cetera. Even though we know by that point that uh, there are very few officers, uh, there is, I mean, no authority. Uh, so this source of symbolic capital, I guess, of social capital, you might call it, is something that the Marathas are unable to really develop. Um, and I can't really say why. Um, there are there are a few theories that some people have. Uh, one is that uh, is a sort of Maratha reliance on a caste specific elite uh, creates a sort of source of conflict. Uh, two that that the Marathas are not you know rec- the sort of Rajput groups don't recognize them as uh, social. How should I put it? equals or superiors uh, or it could it could also be that um, the appropriate Maratha terminology and Maratha kind of ritual because it helps buttress their own claims to their own own kingdoms you know if you can build temples well you know so can I that doesn't make you a you know that doesn't make you a uh, uh, a, a superior ruler and the other of course is is uh, is extraction of revenue, which which uh, because the Maratha state was expansionist, uh, and so it needed uh, to 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 generate revenue, and it its revenue again this is noticeable always remains in area in sort of areas. It's never uh, you know the the invader the invaders 
the invaded territory, they the you know the local elite agreed to certain terms. Uh, I guess to stave off the fury of Maratha arms, uh, and then those sort of dues tend to remain in arrears for years and years and years, which necessitates further military intervention to recover revenue. And it, it kind of goes in this circle for a, for a very long time. And I think taken together, those things might probably explain uh, explain that fault line. Yeah, you know, uh, one line in your book, I think uh, on Kindle, it's page 88. So I don't know what exactly it is in the hard mm-hmm. copy. But there's a line you say, even as Maratha power overran Mughal territory, and consolidated its hold. Refer, for example, to the presence of a governor and a sub-governor for the Badawar country. It failed to capture, and this is the key word that I found very interesting in your book. It failed to capture the ideological resources of the Mughal emperor or entirely displace the Mughal system. Now, here's the thing. So, um, okay, so, you know, leftist historians claim that Maratha state was entirely about extraction and not really administration outside the Maratha core. How accurate would that view be? Because I don't think so that comes off like that in your book. It's not about only extraction outside their core, but I think it's it's this bit in your book, in this paragraph where you talk about the ideological resources. And I think that is where the difference comes, right? Yeah, I mean, so the... Uh, yeah, this, it's quite an old view to see the Marathas as, you know, completely extractive and, you know, rapacious and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and while they were extractive, they were, they were also very thorough governors as far as, uh, as far as this went. So the extraction was partly driven, uh, was partly, you know, never completed and partly driven by the need to complete it because it was never really completed. So, uh, this point, they they were very good at establishing their political authority, as, as you note. But the state was more than just political authority. The exactly. state was the empire was more than just uh, being able to uh, force pe- people to do something that you want them to do. You in at the end to be able to build a stable, long-lasting empire. Uh, you needed people to kind of buy into the idea of of the empire itself, uh, and that was something that the uh, Marathas failed to do, as far as these sort of Rajput groups were concerned. Um, they just didn't. They somehow didn't manage, um, and I can't say whether it was entirely for the want of trying or whether it was uh, um, for 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 the for the kind of theories that I that I mentioned earlier, uh, I, I, just is, have to, I just have a question here, uh, Tripur. Yeah. Is it also because of the nature of the state capacity? These things could have uh, cropped up. Uh, I think there's something to say about the state of the economy because uh, long wars it kind of uh, depleted the Mughal treasury, uh, and Maratha expansion had uh, to a certain extent disrupted trade, etc. Um, so one of one of the reasons could be that uh, I mean that that could uh, I guess that that is one of the reasons, uh, but uh, I can't I mean there's there's no way to real way to pinpoint it exactly I mean that's one of the things about history my again my, I, I'll quote my former supervisor Bailey again he says anybody talking about the 18th and 19th centuries is 
you know, we're, we're all to a certain extent flying by the seat of our pants. We, uh, we have to, we have to use these sort of, I guess, theories to make sense of it. And ultimately no one thing can make sense of it. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess that's that's. Uh, no, no, I understand you. The it's basically, these things uh, these things are complicated. Uh, uh, and and here's the thing, right? And this is why somewhere down the line, I think that line which I quoted from your book is very mm-hmm. important about that. Look, it's not like the Mughals were not taxing them, right? Yeah, the Mughals before the Marathas came, they, they were also taxing the Rajputs. So yeah. the, the issue was not the taxation. The issue was that. I mean, that's one of them, but also the Mughals were a giving them, gave them opportunities for military service uh, as then they, as the empire expanded for uh, positions of authority in far flung provinces, etc. So as uh, again, with the Mughal empire, with the thing to think about is as long as the empire was expanding, it was fiscally stable. And as long as it was fiscally stable, it could afford to have, uh, I guess, positive balance of power, uh, economic balance of power vis-a-vis these groups. So it could ensure that uh, there was a net economic gain for these groups as well, because, you know, they kept their land, even though they were taxed. Uh, but, you know, they also gave and gave military service, which they earned money from. Uh, and their elites, you know, went and served as, you know, the subedars of Gujarat or of here, you know, there. Uh, of Bengal, and you know they so they uh, and uh, net there was an inflow of there was an economic inflow, uh, and as soon as that started to break down, you know there was a crisis of imperial land, and there was uh, sort of the wars drained the treasury and so on and so forth. Uh, this sort of relationship, uh, political relationships, started to kind of there was you start you saw the development of a lot of stress, uh, and you saw this right from the latter part of Aurangzeb's reign uh, onwards. But with the Mughal, with the Marathas, there was uh, a, there wasn't a sort of mutually accommodative language, I would say, of, uh, of where they could, uh, they could be accommodated as, if you were to accommodate them, them as governors, then you, know, you couldn't have your own sort of bureaucratic elite. So in, in some ways, uh, the Maratha state represented a, a really a step forward uh, when we look at the state and yeah, the evolution of the Indian state, I guess, um, um, in, in that sense, in that it relied on a centralized bureaucracy uh, more than uh, uh, these sort of intermediaries. And um, so that was uh, that was a big problem. And because it did that, uh, it didn't I guess I think it wasn't it wasn't simply the fact that they didn't accept them as elite because I guess if they were dealing with them they must have accepted them at, as something but it was the fact that they they did not they were not responsible for I guess granting or recognizing that elite status to them it was presented as something that already existed and uh, that's that is something uh, I think you do you you kind of hit the nail on that that you know that's where the problem lies yeah because uh, you know in, in your book obviously uh, during the Mara- i think it was chapter three during the maratha supremacy you you go through a detailed way of you know what all uh, were the potential problems during the maratha reign and how the northern princely states in that sense go through the problems again one particular line uh, 
where you're quoting Poonam Goel, uh, you say Poonam mm-hmm. Goel strongly noted that the failure of the Maratha government in boosting agriculture industry and the arts of peace as one of mm-hmm. the major shortcomings of their political and administrative mm-hmm. uh, systems and altogether would tend to indicate large uh, scale socio-economic disruption. And, and it brings me to to the larger point where I, I just finished uh, uh, this this book on it's literally called Disruption. And, uh, you know, if mm-hmm. I was just going to look at it uh, from that particular perspective, it's basically David Potter's book. It's called Disruption. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to read that excerpt from the book because I kind of, you know, you, you understand moving hierarchies through this. So he says something, you know, very interesting. He says that three points emerge from studies on disruptions. One is that ideas around which disruptive moments, movements coalesce are already present in the society though typically embedded in marginal or fringe elements. The second is that all these thought systems represented a repudiation of the principles that had governed daily life, setting their insights and ideas over and above the existing order and traditional definitions of legitimacy. Finally, in each case, change is driven by a group tightly organized around a charismatic leader who saw himself as creating a new political order based on the disruptive thought system identified with an earlier thought leader. And this is where Point three is where the entire mm-hmm. crux of the problem is, right? From mm-hmm. a psychological view, from a larger view, where where the Rajputs were used to, you know, or the Northern Kingdoms were used to a certain method where, and as you rightfully said, because there was some sort of economic stability and there, here comes the new system and every new system or disruption creates some sort of turbulence, right? And with turbulence, you have you know skirmishes and that and and this is where i don't know how to put it but sometimes we tend to look at this from a very modern perspective and we say and this is where the left i think and the non-left both in india make the mistake uh the non-left goes into a complete sulking you know kind of sad song mode where hi hum to jagra karte rete te ek dusre se. and the other side the left says see only the British made India. There is no such thing as a nation. But the point is, even though the Marathas and Mughals might be fighting, they still had a larger concept of a spiritual construct. That has mm-hmm. nothing to do with their daily yeah. governance, right? No, they do. That's what allows uh, essentially this sort of system, this sort of mutually, uh, I guess, this conversation to happen, really. Uh, so this conversation can only happen between those who share uh, share the basic assumptions of what they're talking about. So there is, um, there is a shared vocabulary and understanding of, uh, of what the political realm is and uh, what it sort of represents and what it encompasses. Uh, and so that, that there definitely is, and that's shared across, uh, um, you know, across the board which allows um, and that that realm is defined by again as I say by political vocabulary and uh, and ritualism because whoever participates in the rituals of the of the empire is by definition a part of the empire even if they don't pay you tax and even if they don't uh, you know obey your commands to come and give military service when you want uh, and etc etc um, and that uh, that is kind of what uh, gives uh, uh, that's what really defines the 
contours of of uh, of the empire really and um the thing was uh, again when i come back for the for the marathas was that uh, since there was not as much of this ritualism they it was very difficult for them to rule i guess when i when i say rule i mean the term loosely uh, to rule over places where they did not have political authority so um i guess that's 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 uh, that's one key key difference but ultimately that authority now when we look back we often say uh, that something uh, it was either created to uh, i guess support political rule or it was uh, you know if you come from perspective of the left you can say that's uh, that's something created to hide uh, kind of extraction and revenue or high depression uh but it was um it, it was none of those things it is uh it was what it was it's it was important in and of itself because you couldn't have stable political rule uh without a sort of control of ideological um resources and without therefore people willing to put an effort to uh and those are we can see that those ideological resources were important by virtue of the fact that right till the end people wanted uh people wanted to partake of them they wanted a title given by the emperor they wanted recognition uh given by the emperor they wanted uh you know to be made uh the subedar of somewhere uh by the emperor even though you know by that point the even if you you could say that the person had captured that province uh himself and you know didn't effectively need the title of being the emperor's representative uh, it was something that they were willing to expend energy and more so than energy wealth money they were willing they it was often something uh because once a title was given you would you know you would present the emperor with uh with something with you know whatever 500 gold coins or 1000 gold coins or I, you know how many ever uh so people were willing to expend effort and resources into this uh and so we can see that is that that is something that was valued and uh yeah i mean that's that, i i hope that sort of covers your yeah but now okay. let's get into the latter half of the book which is chapter 4 and 5 and now let's get into the british now obviously mm-hmm. the marathas now we got to know the marathas now mm-hmm. let's talk about the british now the british have entered the fray and again well, and it's very interesting and, and again i want to um I'm going to read an excerpt I think it's again page 171 on Kindle you say the reasons for the Bhadoria reluctance to join the rebels and instead declare strongly for the british can only be conjectured or extrapolated from the behavior of the other rajput clans of the area clearly when looking at the results of the land settlement over the previous two decades conventional accounts do not adequately explain the behavior of either the bhadavar raja or other bhadoria magnates or indeed the wider clan in avad according to conventional accounts the inferior proprietors who had recently received proprietary titles to their lands and freedom from the benevolent despotism of the talukdars rose up against the british joining ranks with the dispossessed and socio-economically degraded talukdars in an explosion of the old order this order of events was repeated in areas close to the bhadoria territory places such as manpuri and itawa again you know this is again a classic case of you know what is at the end in it for that particular i don't know what word principality or fiefdom 
and what does that fiefdom get out of it it is actually again people might surprise i can easily see this happening in the current way where you know a particular community as a political voting block uh in a particular ward in a municipal election will be like look i don't want to vote for this party because at a municipal level they have nothing to offer to me and the whole world might be voting for x but i'm going to go with y now today if somebody does that we somehow don't look at them with you know a, a lens of suspicion or a lens of shaming and say hey tumne inka saath diya but at that time somehow if we read our history books we have to look at them through a lens of suspicion why mm-hmm. do you think that now, so so can you tell us what happens with the british what is this particular incident and how does the uh, badoria rajput relationship with the british happen in contrast to the others inside their own clan or sort of their larger clan yeah i mean uh, what happens with the with the coming of the british is uh, the arrival i guess uh, again that it's not a clear cut arrival because the position of the east india company within the sort of uh, within britain changes over time as well but uh, it's the arrival i guess in some ways of a very different conceptualization of what constitutes sovereignty and what constitutes uh, ruling um so for them for example uh, if you look at something like land rights uh, they are something that is the bedrock for the british of a, of a stable Uh, society and they are also something that's unitary someone owns something so that that your uh, la- la- your title is something that's bounded uh, geographically being like you know you own this land and the boundary of this land is here and here um and it's also something that's unitary so you know if you own it then you own it uh whereas if you what had been seen before was something where rights existed Uh, i guess in a cascade one balanced against the other because you know so the right to ownership could uh uh could be um could rest with uh could rest with uh one zamindar and there was there's thus but that could coexist with the right i guess to revenue by uh, a superior zamindar or a, a, a raja for 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 a better word uh and it could also coexist with with lower rights which were um uh the right to till uh the land which might rest with someone else and so la- so all rights were kind of i guess bound uh, balanced one against the each one one against the other they were all interrelated and interconnected uh and um so bounded property right bounded individual property rights were an introduction very much of uh, of colonial rule and um there were also others such as uh, the idea uh, and i i talk about it in the context of decoity and banditry because it comes up because once the british arrive there's a you know reappraisal you know these people are bandits they're criminals whereas this was something uh, because the state had never sought to never claimed a legitimate uh, i guess monopoly on the use of uh, of force but uh, this was something that had never been uh, been claimed so you couldn't really be banditry at that point was a term as i as i said of moral abuse not simply of 
not necessarily a definition of criminality. And so these kind of things appear with uh, with the British. Um, that is the creation, uh, I guess not the creation, but uh, uh, I guess the expansion of, of bureaucracy and officialization uh, of codified, defined law, uh, of unitary and bonded property rights, and thus also the idea of a of a unitary, I guess, conception of sovereignty. So, um, at the end of the day, uh, what they what they tried, the way they understood the system, was very different from the way uh, the Indians had understood uh, the system. Uh, so again, it's, this is something like, uh, and again, the anthropologist Bernard Cohn's work is fantastic on this, is, uh, for example, the grant of a sanad uh, or the grant of, a la- of, say, the emperor giving you a land grant wasn't necessarily a land grant. It may not even in some cases have been an actual grant. You might have captured the land yourself. Uh, but theoretically, you know, the sanad was meant to be a transference of... Uh, I guess, part of the emperor's authority to you. And by lieu of taking the sanat, you kind of acknowledge the emperor's position as an emperor itself. It was a highly ritualized exchange, which was not uh, limited to, or sometimes not even closely connected to the actual uh, 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 sort of event. It didn't, um, it was not a contractual transaction um, and so, you know, that, so there, are, there are many of these things as to how the British understood the uh, functioning of Indian political systems. And uh, so they, for, for example, in many cases, these sanads were taken to be absolute titles of land. So when you had the creation of, uh, I guess, the talukdars or the zamindars as to how the, as to how we might think of zamindars now, is also very much a colonial creation because these were, uh, the Mughals also had zamindars, but the zamindar was never meant to be an absolute owner of land charging rent. Uh, and so you have essentially the introduction of uh, a large number of new norms. Uh, and along with that, they also, what they try to do is they try to take away the, the method of political action in pre-modern times uh, had been through the use of violence, because if you didn't have access to violence, if you couldn't command, you know, 20 people, 100 people, or 1,000 people to commit violence, then you were not a political actor as such. Uh, and uh, so post-mutiny, they started to do that as well with the introduction of the Arms Act and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so what they did was that they understood, they partly appropriated Mughal terminology, but it was understood in a very, very different way. So the system was turned on its head. And by turning it on its head, what you had was not just in, uh, uh, I guess, the mutiny, what I, you know, as you said, the explosion of the old order. But then for much longer, you know, for much uh, of the time afterwards, you had uh, these things of like banditry and, you know, the idea that Indian society is uh, uh, turbulent and you know, so on and so forth, which needs to be sedentarized, uh, which needs to be quote unquote civilized, uh, was uh, it, very much, I guess, something born out of, in my view, born out of this kind of big clash between how the political uh, systems were understood.
Yeah, and I think you summed this up. So you summed this up in uh, beautifully where you say, uh, on the other end, the British did succeed in appropriating the Mughal conceptual realm. So basically, what are you talking about? The Farmans and the Sanats mm-hmm. and all these things mm-hmm. and, and the titles that you they would give to different people. But through the practices they appropriated, they also articulated a radically different version of sovereignty. In effect, they claimed a monopoly over not only sovereignty and the processes through which it was constituted, but also the right to regulate social and uh, political relationships. Now, this is uh, a very interesting bit where you talk about the right to create political and social relationships because this particular bit, we're bearing... Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't want to get into the good consequences or the bad consequences that I leave to the intelligence of the the reader when they read your book. But let's expand on this. So how are we kind of tackling with it? Uh, so, I mean, the way they did it, for example, was uh, one thing that I talked about was, uh, was of course, Arms Act, but also through the regulation of, of uh, say, relationships between the zamindar and the tiller of the soil, because that which had earlier on been a kind of balance of rights uh, in one, you know, in one kind of go through the settlements was turned into uh, the tiller of the soil, even though he was tilling the soil and paying revenue also was, was turned into, they effectively they were turned into full owners and then tenants. Uh, and these categories had uh, hadn't really existed. Um, and that's one example. So, you know, there was a continual creation of these these sorts of categories. Uh, you see it in the case of, I guess, the creation of categories like criminal tribes, etc., uh, which then became... Because these categories are not just, uh, I guess, when the Mughals c- created a category of zamindars, it was a kind of like vague nebulous category in which, uh, you know, you could say there's, this is a zamindar who owns, uh, you know, three districts, and this is a zamindar who owns... Uh, you know, five acres. Everybody was a zamindar with uh, who fitted into a system of hierarchy. Here, what you had was you had legally defined and codified categories, which people were then, of course, in some ways forced to subscribe to. So, whether it was landlord and tenant, whether it was uh, somebody in the criminal tribes, uh, or whether it was through later on in the census, etc., the definition, uh, uh, the sort of defining categories of. Uh, of religion or caste, uh, these were these had always all been um, n- these had never been legally defined and codified, and then those definitions and codifications used to cr- create political relationships or regulate those relationships, uh, and uh, so that I mean that's that's generally what I mean, and uh, I guess we. We we bear it, uh, we bear we bear the sort of uh, hallmarks of it uh, all the time in the categories that uh, we both uh, deploy legally, but also the categories that we often deploy to make sense uh, of the past, uh, because many of these categories uh, didn't mean the same thing through time, and that's why it's always important when we when we deploy these as as you said you know the way when we look at the past we often project these categories and the meanings that we have given them and the understandings that we have onto the past. But these categories have not been stable. Uh, so what uh, um, it's only through legal codification and 
the sort of the creation of officialdom and bureaucracy of that kind uh, that that the British sought to regulate these relationships. And uh, that, that's kind of what I meant in that sentence. All right. So so now, uh, obviously, I want to take up two, three questions. So and it's not so. It's very interesting. So somebody has asked the question, was there resentment for collaboration with the enemy? Now, here's what I'm not able to understand. It's like, what is, how would they understand the enemy? And what was collaboration even considered as? Because as far as I'm concerned, your book makes it pretty clear that they did not consider Mughal to be their friend. It was just a relationship of convenience. And they definitely did, did not consider Maratha as the enemy. They just did not like the taxation policy. So as far as I'm concerned, it was never in the realm of that, right? If if I was to extract that from your book. Uh, yeah, no, there wasn't. And the reason was, A, that the North Indian sort of aristocracy used shifting alliances as a strategy across through time. So what you see is at that level, empires rise and empires fall. But that sort of level remains relatively... Uh, stable in a, in a way. So um, they were very aware, I guess, of their, uh, of their own survival and of the need for whoever came to power eventually uh, to come to a, a sort of accommodation with them because you needed these people to access both resources and military manpower in the locality. So uh, which is how it was possible to fight. Uh, you know, they you see it when the Mughal princes rebel. One of them rebels, and you know, some of the nobles side with that guy. And once he's defeated, uh, he might be killed um, because you know he represents a conceptual challenge to he represents a challenge to the new emperor. But the nobles would be forgiven, and you know they'd come to terms with it, and they'd they'd continue. So ultimately, uh, yeah, that's 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 what it was. Uh, they they kind of shifted alliances. They moved around. They maintained their, uh, they tried to maintain as far as possible their control of the locality. And they tried to then negotiate as best as they could uh, with whichever superior power came to occupy the imperial uh, throne. Yeah. And, and this is the thing, like, see, I have at gotten times, a couple yeah, so, of questions. Sorry, just, just please, I, go, I, I, no, times no, they, please go ahead. No, I meant at times they joined them uh, and at other times they rebelled against them. And it, it was a sort of continuum. So the, uh, the so the the structure moved from you know from this way to this way and this way to this way and so it was like a continuum within which you know they've shifted left and right uh, but sometimes they joined them sometimes they rebelled against them but at each point their aim was to keep control of the locality and then to I guess uh, to structure their relationship with the superior sort of authority. Yeah, and this is very important to understand because it kind of kind of answers the two other questions that have been asked. I'll read them out, and it is very important to read it out as it is because this is the problem with putting simplistic understanding of today's systems and trying to understand the past. And this is why your book is so important. So I'm literally going to read both the questions. I know you're going to laugh at it, but it's very important to read it. So some. So somebody has said, I came across a lot of Rajput intellectuals. They say Maratha rule caused a lot of direct atrocities on Rajput rulers. How true is it? Or is the rift between Rajput and Maratha because of the fact that Mughals and Rajputs have some sort of political agreements, especially in Jaipur? Now, here's the thing. This is a very 
contemporary way of looking at people at that time like you rightfully mm-hmm. said for them all that matters was their fiefdom as long as whatever was suitable for their fiefdom right that's all they were concerned with so sometimes they would like the maratha sometimes they would not like the maratha sometimes they would like the british or the mughal sometimes they would not and their thing was only about their elite status in society right mm-hmm. to to a large extent and i mean atrocities again is a, is an interesting word because yes uh, uh Marath- maratha rule did come with uh uh with a lot of military intervention um in a way because which they had to do because they couldn't uh, because they hadn't captured any of the ideological resources uh, the only way they could exert power was through the exertion of mm-hmm. military power they couldn't uh, they didn't have the symbolic capital that the mughal emperor had had so if you look at rajput principalities the mughal emperors had uh Uh, had uh, you know appropriated the power to choose the successor to these rajput principalities and uh, they did it and they did it uh, of course they generally limited they themselves you know it was a symbolic power so they generally limited themselves to the sons of the uh, of the ruler but uh, oftentimes you know your rajput history is rife with uh, the younger sons succeeding etc or the brother succeeding etc instead of uh, uh, instead of the son and uh, that happened uh, that happened relatively often as in there more than you know one or two incidents of that happening uh, during mughal rule and the only serious rebellion that comes up uh, comes up in jodhpur with uh, after the death of uh, i think it's maharaja jaswant singh who dies without any of his sons being born uh, and then finally uh, you know his son ajit singh is born and then you know aurangzeb decides to recognize a uh, the brother of jaswant singh etc but i mean jaswant singh himself had succeeded in, in a similar manner so it just, it's not as if uh, this was the first exactly. time this was happening it's just that the person chosen in and uh, and you know suspicion of aurangzeb himself uh uh and the and the person who aurangzeb had chosen just one singh's brother i think it was uh, is what ultimately led to the rebellion but before the rebellion there were few there were long negotiations in which uh, for example one of the things that happened was uh, that the nobles of jodhpur you know promised aurangzeb that they'd destroy uh all of the temples of jodhpur if he only he would recognize ajit singh as the uh, as the successor as because aurangzeb obviously was uh, uh i mean that's what they thought aurangzeb wanted um and you know he probably did but uh, uh so you know there was it's it's when you think of them purely in these simple terms uh, the past becomes a very foreign country as the as the joke goes um you yeah. have to be able to think of the past by essentially by using the terms and concepts that made sense to the people who were there at that time and uh, so yes mughal uh, maratha rule was in a in a way uh, if you look at i guess in in purely instrumental terms yes it was very disruptive uh, there were plenty of invasions many people were killed uh, you even have and I, at one point i quote in my book a letter from the maratha governor saying oh you know the maratha army passed through this and they caused so much loss because they uh, robbed the people and they uh, 
you know, and they destroyed crops and so on and so forth. So yes, a lot of that happened. But uh, equally, it was also the only way for the Maratha state to exert uh, uh, to exert power. It couldn't. It didn't have the symbolic uh, and ritual capital. I guess ideological capital that uh, that the Mughal state had. So that would give it, I guess, a, a reason as well. Totally agree. I think, uh, you know, this one particular paragraph, I had highlighted it to read it in the end. I think this sums up the, what we are dealing with even today. You say the post-colonial state is still being created, still being negotiated, and the contradictions between the two versions of sovereignty are still in the process of being renegotiated. In many senses, the political culture of post-colonial India continues to borrow and redeploy the vocabulary and strategies of its Mughal past, shifting alliances, patronage networks, highly personalized political negotiations that continue to grate with the conceptual foundations of the modern state. And I think that this is so perfect to explain what's happening in India and, you know, that the entire tussle in India about are we a group? Uh, group rights-based society? Are we an individual rights-based mm -hmm. society? I mean, how do we deal with these tussles? And and a lot of it comes from the basic reality that we still are in many ways a pre-industrial society and we have post-industrial norms in a pre-industrial society and those things lead to a whole plethora of options. This is not Misha saying democracy is bad. I'm the biggest supporter of democracy. So before somebody you know, kind of misunderstands what I'm trying to say, but what I'm trying to present here is that in that paragraph, you you actually have presented the reality of India and how politicians even today negotiate and try to tread that fine line where, you know, in my opinion, India is in a grave danger of becoming an entirely group rights-based society. It, it, it by and large is, if you ask mm -hmm. me, which is why India does not have free speech. Why? Any society which has a blasphemy law, mm -hmm. it basically says group rights basically are above individual rights so mm -hmm. my my right to offend someone is basically not non-existence in uh, in, in india but uh, yeah so tripur i think you know this was a fantastic book and uh so just one last question tripur before we wrap together's discussion up what next is coming up and what can we expect from you in the future uh so i have been working on <laughs> uh, i have been working on a uh uh, on a book that I've co-authored um, with an academic from the University of Leiden. Um, and it's, um, we will be, I guess, announcing it, uh, announcing it very soon. It's, it's ready, it's going to come out uh, in the middle of November. And uh, we're just putting finishing touches. And once, you know, we have, uh, we have that down, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of announce it, but uh, it, it sort of, it touches upon, uh, uh, upon, the uh, I guess the era of the birth of uh, the birth of kind of the Indian Republic, uh, you know, independence and the birth of the Republic, and uh, it uh, it also touches uh, you know quite majorly on uh, on uh, on Jawaharlal Nehru. So it uh, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. So with, without without giving away too much right now, I guess uh, I guess that's that's what I'd say. Um, it's but it'll be it'll be interesting and i'm sure you will find it interesting because it again it looks at very very key uh, uh questions or debates i guess that we uh, that still remain unresolved um so it's things that i guess questions that were opened up in that period uh, for which we're still uh, looking for answers so that's um, uh, that's what it looks at 
sounds sounds good i'm really looking forward to your book and as soon as it comes out i'll read and we'll be back again here on the podcast so tripur once again thanks a lot for coming uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always i always say this you know you and vikram vikram sampat are two of my favorite writers it's so nice to see you know good writing for a, for a change and and uh, you know it's 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 not jargon laden and secondly it's not judgmental what i love about your mm-hmm. writing style or vikram's writing style is you just say ye hua ye hua ye hua ab tum log apni akkal laga lo mujhe tumhe apni akkal laga ke dene ki zarurat nahi and that's what you know narration is all about the narration mm-hmm. is all about this is how things happen i'm not making a judgment call uh, so vikram uh, so so tripur or vikram you know guys you guys are the the best thing that has maybe happened to indian writing in a long time so tripur thanks a lot once again for coming on the podcast no thank you very much for inviting me and thank you that's i mean that's a huge compliment to be <laughs> to be put in the same league as uh, to be put in the same league as vikram who i uh, i really respect and who's writing i really like uh, i have just bought the second volume uh, of savarkar and i'm 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 really looking forward to reading it because as you say uh, uh, we need uh, we need to be able to step away from you know uh essentially politically charged conversations and be able to look at it uh for for what it is or as far as possible try to look at it for what it is uh, i mean ultimately objectivity is never uh you know it's never 100% possible but uh this is this is a huge compliment thank you so much all right guys time to wrap today's discussion up but once again i'll insist in the description of the podcast i have left the link to buy all of tripus books so not only should you buy this book you should buy his second book which you already discussed on the podcast which is uh, i think again it will blow your mind about how what the journey of free speech in india and how jawaharlal nehru and all the other leaders what they were doing at what point of time i highly recommend you to read both the books buy them so i'll end today's podcast once again thanks a lot for watching if, uh, to everyone uh, please like the channel subscribe to the channel like the video subscribe to the channel leave a comment support the podcast in whichever way you want whether on youtube patreon or buying the merchandise or sending your direct donations i'll try to get another interesting discussion next week and i'll see you guys next time until then take care namaste goodbye Thank you.